You may be seated. Psalm 49.11 says, And I will make all my mountains away. I thought of that verse when uh, Brother Sam led the song, I know the Lord will make a way for me. And it's possible that some of you feel like you're facing a mountain this morning for some reason or another. Whether you're here or listening in, uh, perhaps you feel like your journey has been mountainous. Perhaps you feel like there's a mountain ahead of you. But God's promise is, I will make all my mountains away. And I appreciated that song. I know the Lord will make a way for me, for you, whatever your situation is this morning. God has a, a path prepared for you. We praise God for the opportunity to be here again this morning. And uh, as we continue looking at the Sermon on the Mount, maybe just a little bit of review. The last sermon I gave in this series was an overview of the first 18 verses of chapter 6. And in that message, I noted that there's a theme that is found throughout these verses, as well as numerous topics or subjects. And the last sermon was on that overall theme, which is living for the approval of God, rather than just seeking, or rather than seeking only the praise of men. Now, it appears that that was the main emphasis of Jesus in this passage. Do what you do as unto God and not unto men. That was his emphasis. That was his theme. But he also does mention various topics in this passage. And other than that overall theme, it doesn't seem like he gives a lot of specific teaching on those topics, with the exception of the topic of prayer. <clears throat> on that subject, he does give us a very beautiful example of prayer, which we want to look at later on. So he may not give us a lot of teaching on the subjects, but neither does he even tell us that we are supposed to do them. He doesn't tell us in this passage that you are supposed to give alms. He doesn't necessarily tell us later on that you are supposed to pray or that you're supposed to fast. It's more assumed or understood that you will be doing them. It's obviously expected. He says, when thou doest alms, when thou prayest, when thou fastest. So it is understood that we're going to do them. This morning I want to start looking at, at these topics that are addressed in these verses. And the first of those, which you noticed in the verses that, that Joseph just read, is alms. Now, just because Jesus does not enlarge on the subject does not mean that the Bible does not teach on it. And as we look at the subject, we'll look at some of those teachings throughout uh, various portions of the Bible. The title of the message this morning is simply, When Thou Doest Alms. And if you're guessing that the title of the next message will be, When Thou Prayest, you just might be right. I guess time will tell. The message for this morning, when thou doest alms. Alms. Just what does that word mean? It's not a word that we use real frequently. And probably the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word alms is our alms fund. And the specific opportunity that you have to contribute to that 
twice a year, every time when we have communion here. Well, if that's what you think of, you're not on the wrong track. Although, if that's all you think of, you probably haven't entirely reached the destination. It's, it's a part of it. Contributing to the alms fund is certainly good, but it's not all that there is to doing alms. There is certainly a lot more. So what does this word mean? What does the word alms mean? Well, according to Strong's, in their Greek dictionary, the word alms is the exercise of compassion toward the poor. The exercise of compassion toward the poor. Another definition in my study Bible refers to it as acts of charity, which has the same idea, acts of charity, meeting the needs of the poor. So while this idea of doing alms includes giving money or gifts to the poor, it certainly is not limited to that. As I said, there's a lot more. It's not just giving, it is also doing. And I'd like to emphasize that this morning. As we focus on this passage, my desire is that we could expand our thinking beyond simply dropping money into an offering basket, expanding it to doing a lot more. So when you give money to the widows or to the sick or to the needy, you are doing or giving alms. But when you ladies come to Sewing Circle and make comforters or whatever you do, you are doing alms. If you mow an elderly neighbor's lawn, you are doing alms. If you march for someone that has the trouble getting it done themselves, you're doing alms. When you go Christmas caroling for a shut-in, you're doing alms. When you use go to Evergreen Estates and sing, you are doing alms. You're ministering to the needy. If you invite a visitor at church home for a meal, you're doing alms. If you take a meal to a family who just had a baby, you're doing alms. You see, doing alms involves a lot more than just simply dropping money in a basket. And doing alms is not something that should simply be an occasional gift or an occasional action. It should be a lifestyle. Again, Jesus did not say if you do alms, but when you do alms. So this morning, we want to take a look at two aspects of doing alms. The one aspect, as I indicated, is giving, giving money or whatever it may be. And the second aspect is kind deeds. So the first aspect will be giving. Second aspect will be kind, need, uh, kind deeds. Doing alms, first main point, doing alms is giving to the needy. And I'd like to look at about nine points that we should keep in mind as we give. And in this point, I'm thinking primarily of giving in a financial way. So the first main point is doing alms is giving to the needy and various um, aspects to that. Subpoint number one, giving should meet a physical need. Jesus talks about giving to the poor. The Bible talks in numerous places about giving to the poor, to the widows, to the needy, to the sick, to the handicapped, maybe to the widowed, to the bereaved, uh, 
It may be to the lonely. It may be to the hurting. But someone who has a need. So if you simply exchange gifts with a friend, that does not necessarily qualify as giving alms. You're just doing something uh, that you, you've agreed to do. Or if you give to earn recognition, that does not qualify as doing alms. Giving for your personal benefit in order to acquire recognition, in order to acquire some advantage, in order to gain support of people, that does not qualify as giving alms. It qualifies more as politics. So giving alms should meet a physical need. Secondly, giving alms or giving should be done willingly and cheerfully. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says, Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Giving should be done willingly and cheerfully. Perhaps you've heard the story about the little boy who received some money from his grandpa. His grandpa gave him a dollar bill and a quarter. And he told him, one of these is for you to keep, and one of them is for you to put in the offering next Sunday. And you can decide which is which. Well, the boy thought about that a little bit, and he says, well, the Bible, or he thought the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. I think I could give the quarter more cheerfully than I could give the dollar, so I'm going to give the quarter. Well, I think he was kind of missing the point a little bit. It seems like he may have been giving grudgingly. He, he wasn't really excited about this idea of giving or sharing. Giving should be done cheerfully. Number three, giving should be done generously. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6, just a prior verse to what I just mentioned earlier. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap bountifully. Now this is, this uh, verse is given in the context of giving. It's written in the context of giving, and it indicates that if you give sparingly, you will reap sparingly. And it's encouraging bountiful giving. So giving should be done generously. Ephesians 4.28 says, Rather let him labor, working with his hands that which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. This verse indicates one of the purposes why we work. And that is so that we have to give to others. Give to those who need. Our goal in earning more should be so that we are able to give more. Now, we are pretty strong on teaching saving. Within our circles, that's a pretty strong point. The Bible teaches giving. Rather than laying up treasures, it teaches giving. Now, the Bible does teach financial responsibility. I am not uh, saying that we should not be responsible. But a big part of financial responsibility is sharing with those who are in need. So giving should be done generously. Number four, giving should be done regularly. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, uh, Paul speaks quite a bit about giving. It's scattered throughout his epistles, different epistles, different uh, situations. 
And here he was talking to the church at Corinth again on another occasion. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, he had talked to the Galatians about giving, now I also talk to you, the Corinthians. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. So giving is not something that should just be a sporadic thing. Every once in a while we get a newsletter in the mail that strikes our sense of compassion or mercy and we decide, well, maybe it's time I should give. But it's something that should be done regularly. It should be a regular habit. And I've, I've heard someone indicate that, that giving should actually be an act of worship. And uh, I'm not sure I entirely agree with this person, but he indicated that he doesn't feel it's appropriate that we take the offering while we sing a song. Because he says that's two separate acts of worship. When I sing, I worship in that way. And when I give, I worship in that way. And I want to be able to concentrate on my giving. And it's hard for me to concentrate in both at the same time. Well, that was his opinion. But giving should be done regularly. It should be done cheerfully. And perhaps it should be an act of worship. Being done regularly. Number five. Giving should reflect God's blessing to us. I don't think any one of us here would argue against the fact that we are a blessed people. We are blessed in so many ways. And one way to express our appreciation to God for his blessing to us is to share that blessing with others. In fact, I believe if we do not share our blessing with others, it may be an encouragement to God to give less blessing to us. Again, this passage in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells the Corinthians, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him. And this verse indicates the more you get, the more you should give. The more God blesses you, the more you should seek to be a blessing to others. If God blesses you, share that blessing. I remember seeing a bumper sticker on the back of a pickup one time that said, yes, this is my truck. No, I will not help you move. That was not really sharing his blessings. I think for a Christian, a more appropriate bumper sticker would be, yes, God blessed me with the possibility to have this truck. Certainly, I would be glad to share that blessing with you. If God gave you a truck, if God gave you food, if God gave you a house, if God gave you money, I think he expects us to share that with others. Giving should reflect God's blessing to us. Number six, giving should reflect our dependence upon God. Sometimes we have this concept that, well, if I give too much, I won't have enough for myself. I need to take care of myself. I'll let others worry about themselves. But that is not really being dependent on God. When there is a need, when we see a need in our circles, when we see a need within our brotherhood or our community... I think we should respond to that need. 
rather than living by the mindset, well, someday I'm going to need this money myself, so I'd better keep it. I don't think that is really trusting God. If God gives you the ability to help someone, help them. And if he gives, allows a need to come into your life later on, be willing to trust him to meet that need when the time comes. You see, giving reflects our dependence on God. And I think this is one of the beauties of the sharing programs that we have here within our church. We have a number of different sharing programs with uh, health care, with automotive liability, with house uh, fire and so forth. And I think these are a beautiful way of sharing in the brotherhood, an organized way. Last week, I believe, many of you received an assessment for the church aid program. What is your response when you get that assessment? Oh no, here we go again. Got to pay some more money. You know, I've been paying this money for five years or ten years or twenty years, and I never got anything out of it. Well, praise the Lord that you didn't need it. That should be your response. I think when we get those assessments, when we pay those, every time we pay that, it should be a reminder of the blessings that God has given us. And we should pay it with joy. I am so glad that I'm able to help someone else with their needs rather than needing to depend on this myself. God, I'm grateful that I'm able to help others in their needs. And I think we should contribute to those programs hoping to never get anything back from it. Hoping that we will not need to rely on it. But if the time comes that we do, that's when we can do it with humility and gratitude for God, to God for meeting our needs in that way. There's just something beautiful about brotherhood sharing. <clears throat> Number seven. Giving should be sacrificial. Uh, this one hurts a little bit. We don't mind giving as long as we can do it from our surplus, as long as there's no personal sacrifice involved. But sometimes giving defies logic. And sometimes God may ask us to give in a way that does not seem logical to us. And he may ask us to give in a way that is sacrificial, that hurts. And there are, again, plenty of examples from the Bible of people who gave sacrificially. Luke 21, the first several verses, give the account when Jesus and his disciples entered into the temple, and he looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. I can just imagine bags of coins. And he saw also a certain poor widow, not just a widow, a poor widow, Casting in thither two mites. And he said, of a truth I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast in unto the offerings of God. But she of her penury hath cast in all the living she had. Why did that widow give her last two mites in the offering? That was sacrificial giving. Why did she do that? Where was her common sense? Where was her logic? 
Uh, did she have no children to care for? Didn't she care about herself? I think she did it because she loved God. I think she did it, maybe even as an expression of dependence to God. Maybe it was her way of saying, God, I know there's absolutely no way that I can take care of myself. I'm trusting you to do that, and what I have, I'm giving to you. It's a beautiful example of giving everything we have to God and allowing him to decide what to do with it. Another example from Scripture that is not logical is when Elijah went to the widow's house. Now, I've often been glad that I was not Elijah in this case because I would have had a hard time doing what Elijah did. This widow had enough left to make one more meal for her, herself, and her household, and that was it. And she said, I'm going to make this, we're going to eat it, we're going to die. That's all I have left. And Elijah went there and said, I want you to serve me first. I want you to go ahead and make it and give it to me. Now, obviously, that was God's message to her. It wasn't just a message of a selfish prophet that was looking out for himself. But that was another example of sacrificial giving. It was an example of giving that did not make sense. But the widow did it. And God met her need. God met her need in a beautiful way. That's what sacrificial giving is about. It's depending on God. And I think of the boy with five loaves and two fishes. You know, sometimes children are a good example for us. If that would have been an adult, would he have done the same thing? I don't know. Maybe he would have. Maybe he wouldn't have. But the boy did. The only thing he had to eat... You know how boys are. They get pretty hungry. I can imagine he was going from home since morning. Probably wasn't going to get back till the end of the day. All he had to eat, he gave it away. He gave it away, and God met his need. Psalm 126, verse 6 says, He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. This is a picture of a, of a poor family who saved enough grain to plant a crop for the future year. And perhaps this was a very poor family, and perhaps as he took this portion of grain that he had laid aside, he knew his family would need something to eat. And he took this grain... And he just cast it out in the ground when he could have fed it to his family now. And I can do that. I can, I can under picture as from this verse as he was doing that. Perhaps the tears came to his eyes. He that beareth precious seed weeping. What if it's a dry year? What if there's a pestilence that comes and destroys the crop? What if there's a hailstorm? What if the enemy comes and destroys my fields and I'm throwing all this away? We could eat it. But the promise is he shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. What is precious to you this morning? That may be what God is asking you to give. Giving should be sacrificial. If it's not sacrificial, 
I don't think we understand the aspect of giving as God wants us to. Number eight, giving should be done without show. And that's the emphasis of Jesus in these verses. Do not do your alms before men. We should not give to be seen of others. We should not give to receive glory from others. That's pretty much what the last sermon on this series was about. So I won't enlarge on that a lot at this point. Number nine, giving should be done without expectation of return. Now, on one hand, God promises that he will take care of us, and, and we rest in that promise. But at the same time, we should not give in order to gain earthly return from that. Luke chapter 6, verses 34 to 36. For if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. I think this passage teaches us that we should give without expectation of return. Maybe I'll go off here a little bit on a bunny trail and, and talk a little bit about fundraisers. Now, I want to clarify that I do not say this in opposition to having fundraisers. Fundraisers are effective. Um, they generally accomplish their purpose. I enjoy attending them. So I'm not opposing fundraisers, but my, my point in bringing this up is to ask us, what is our motive for giving, and what are we really looking for? Because I think fundraisers tend to uh, reveal a weakness in human nature. We tend to give more if we get something out of it. We tend to give more if others are involved, or when it's a social event, or when it's a fun, festive atmosphere, it just kind of lends to a, an attitude of generosity. So, what is our motive in giving? You know, fundraisers may be effective, but they may not be the most efficient way of giving. Uh, for example, let's suppose we're, we're going to have a fundraiser for some mission in Africa. And suppose Brother John has a uh, lawn furniture business, and he says, well, I would contribute $1,000 to this fundraiser. So he finds a piece of lawn furniture that's worth $1,000, and he contributes it to the fundraiser. Meanwhile, Brother Joe says, you know, I'm willing to contribute $1,000 to this fundraiser, so I'm going to go and I'm going to spend $1,000. And he sees this piece of lawn furniture, and he bids on it, and he gets it for $1,000. So do you see what happens? Brother John says he contributed $1,000. Brother Joe says he gave $1,000. How much did the mission get? $1,000. What happened to the other $1,000? You see why I say it may not be the most efficient way of giving. 
And like I said, I don't say this to discourage organizers from planning fundraisers, but I say it to challenge our way of thinking. Why do we give? What expectations do we have when we give? What would happen if Weavertown School would say, this year for our fundraiser, we're going to have a drive-through offering. On this date, we're going to have several men standing out in the driveway holding buckets, and you just drive through and drop in your money and go on your way. Would they receive as much as they normally do? Something for us to think about. Why do I give? Do I find joy in the act of giving? What is my motivation? Do I give because there is a need? Or do I give because I get something out of it, some pleasure in, in the atmosphere? Why do I give? Well, let's move on to the second aspect of giving. Giving, or let me back up, move on to the second aspect of doing alms. Doing alms, first of all, is giving, but doing alms is also doing kind deeds. I think that's very much a part of doing alms. Now the word alms is used only 14 times in the Bible. And four of those times are right here in this passage. Verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. It's mentioned one time in each verse. It's used twice in the Gospel of Luke and eight times in the book of Acts. Both times when the word alms is used in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, it is used as an imperative to give alms. And I think in that context, it was the idea of giving money or gifts to the poor, which is what we already discussed. But that's not the only way in which the word alms is used. In fact, in this passage in Matthew 6, which we typically read at communion when we share in the alms fund, I think this passage refers to more to what we do than to what we give. I'd like you to note how some other translations word this verse, verse 1. The NIV says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen of them. Practicing your righteousness. And that phrase, practicing righteousness, is also used in some other um, translations that we tend to rely on, feel are pretty uh, reliable. The ESV, the NASB, also uses uh, that phrase of practicing your righteousness. The New King James Version says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men. So doing alms is or can be kind deeds that we do. Another example of this is found in Luke, or excuse me, in uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 6. In the account of Dorcas, it says, This woman was full of good deeds and alms deeds which she did. So her alms was things that she did, her kind deeds. And it specifies here specifically her alms deeds included making coats and garments for the widows. So that's why I say, ladies, when you come to Sewing Circle, you are doing alms. It's one way of doing alms. So we consider what the Bible has to say about giving, Let's look now at some things it says about kind deeds. Five things about kind deeds. Number one, doing kind deeds is 
commanded in the Bible. It's not merely suggested or recommended. It is commanded. I'll give you several verses. Uh, one verse that was read last Sunday, Proverbs 3, 27. Withhold not good from them to whom it is due when it is in the power of thine hand to do it. This verse tells you if you have the opportunity to do good, do it. James chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Did you ever think of passing up the opportunity to do something kind for someone as a sin? That's pretty much what this verse says. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Hebrews thirteen sixteen. But to do good and to communicate... I think communicate here has the idea of sharing or giving, but to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So doing kind deeds, number one, is commanded in the Bible. Number two, kind deeds should focus on the needy. Now that might sound familiar because we had a similar point when we were talking about giving. Giving should focus on the needy. But kind needs should also focus on the needy. It should not be restricted only to the needy, but we should focus on them in particular. James chapter 1, he says a lot about doing uh, good things. James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. You see the needy, the fatherless, the orphans, the widows, those who may not have regular support. This is what God is looking for us. This is who God is looking for us to reach out to as we consider our kind deeds. The poor, the sick. What about the bereaved? The lonely? The hurting? Maybe somebody has been hurt emotionally. Maybe someone has been offended spiritually. These are all people that we can do something kind for. Have you young people ever thought about doing alms at school? Probably not. But if there's someone at school that you think may be lonely, that you see is hurting for some reason, and you reach out to that person in kindness, that's your way of doing alms at school. The same can apply to work. Reaching out to the hurting, the lonely, whoever it may be. So number one, doing kind deeds is commanded. Number two, kind deeds should focus on the needy. Number three, this may get even more difficult, kind deeds should focus on those who mistreat us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, the previous sermon, is, or previous chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good, kind deeds, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And persecute you. Romans 12. Same idea. Therefore if thine enemy hunger. Feed him. If he thirst. Give him drink. For in so doing. Thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil. But overcome evil. With kind deeds. With good. Kind deeds should focus on those. Who mistreat us. Number four. Kind deeds should not be. For personal gain. It's not to set ourselves up for personal advantage, not to impress the rich and the famous. Luke chapter 14, Jesus speaks to this. 
when uh, someone had prepared a meal, Jesus' response was, when you make a feast, a meal, a supper, a dinner or supper, do not call your friends or your brethren, neither thy kinsmen nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. And number five, kind deeds are illustrated in the Bible. And there are many illustrations of kind deeds, and my mind went to quite a few of them. But uh, I think I'll focus primarily on one here, and I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. It's a beautiful example of someone who performed kind deeds. Luke chapter 10, you may recognize that chapter as a chapter where we find the uh, story of the Good Samaritan. I want to read this passage, these verses to you. It's a beautiful story. And think about the kindness that was performed. Just think about what Jesus is teaching in this passage. I'll begin reading at verse 30. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. In literature class, you may have learned that a good story typically has a protagonist and an antagonist. The good guys and the bad guys that contrast each other in the story. In this passage, who are the bad guys? Well, you might say the thieves. They're the bad guys. But is that Jesus' point in this passage? He asks a question at the end, which now of these three? Who was he talking about, these three? He was talking about the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. So who were the bad guys in this passage? I propose that they are the priest and the Levite. You see, the, the thieves, they were just part of the setting. They were part of the background. That was what happened. But what Jesus is emphasizing here is the, the difference in response. You have the priest and the Levite who Jesus 
is using to set up a contrast with the Samaritan, the contrast between right and wrong. The priest and the Levite were the ones that supposedly knew to do good. Remember Jesus said, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So the priest and the Levites were the sinners in this passage. The Samaritan, on the other hand, was the one who did alms, who did kind deeds. <clears throat> kind deeds where it was needed. Note that the Bible says he had compassion on him. Now, I mentioned the Strong's definition for the word alms. I mentioned that earlier. And Strong's uses a word which I did not share. It uses the word compassionateness, compassionateness, to define the word alms. Now, I did not realize that the word or that compassionateness was a word, but that's what doing alms is all about. It is the act of showing compassion. The Good Samaritan did not stop with one act. He could have propped a pillow under this poor victim's head to make him a little more comfortable and going on his way, feeling pretty good about himself, well, at least he should feel a little better now. But he didn't stop with that. Notice what he did. He, cl he cleaned his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he bandaged his wounds. Then he took him to urgent care on his brand new donkey that he didn't want to get messed up and bloody, or his brand new saddle, whatever it may have been. He wasn't worried about that. He sat with him during the night, and he paid for his care. And not only that, but he followed up on his ongoing needs. He indicated, I'm going to come back again. I'm going to check up on this, and anything that you spend on this man, I'm going to pay. What is the word for us? What word does Jesus have for us? It's very simple and very direct. Go and do thou likewise. Show your compassionateness, compassionateness to those who need it. So doing alms should not just be an occasional gift, nor should it be an occasional action? I think doing alms should be our lifestyle. And if you think of something that, if you think of it as something that you do twice a year, like I said earlier, you might be on the right track, but you haven't yet reached the destination. It needs to be a lifestyle that we do continually. And I think again of the example of Dorcas. This was her life. It says she was full of good works. This is what she did. I imagine her there day and night with her needle and thread, sewing up garments for the poor, day and night. It was her lifestyle. I'm going to close by reading some verses from Matthew chapter 25. Again, words of Jesus, and they should be words of challenge to us. As we think about the lifestyle that we are living, and as we ask the question, is my life full of good works? Someday, Jesus is going to evaluate what your life was all about. 
Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungred, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret, himself shall reward thee openly. Let's kneel for prayer.